Thrive Leadership Podcast in three, two, cue music. This is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. It's a place to connect you to nationally acclaimed leaders, their insights and ideas on how to help you thrive in every area of your life. Your life. On today's episode, Bill Hybels. The most important visions carry the highest price tag. Don't think that this church work business is an easy road. It's very fulfilling. There's nothing I'd rather do, but it's costly on every front. Now your hosts, Brad Lominick and CJ Alvarado. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Thrive Leadership Podcast. Hey. I'm your host, Brad Lominick, along with the right hand mm. man, co-host. Yes in the right chair of the cockpit, C.J. Alvarado. It's always good to see your face, Brad. You're looking very tan. Am I? Well, yeah, I know you're a tan guy because you're just tan. Naturally. Yeah, yeah you, you are tan naturally. Yeah, a little bit. But you, you look a little well, brown. I was in the sun, you know. I spent a little time in Palm Springs and uh, got out of that Northern California rain, so yeah. Well, as an Atlanta guy, we've been caught up in winter. I look like the, the bottom of a whale shark. <laughs> Uh, which I'm assuming is a very white, pale white. I'm assuming I've color. never seen the bottom. Well, let's just well, let, let's say the way we said it in Oklahoma growing up was you're whiter than a Safeway chicken. Again, I don't know why we said that, but you're whiter than a Safeway chicken. That's nasty. You know Safeway, the, yeah, grocery, the grocery store. store yeah. yeah, I shop at Whole Foods personally. All that to say, I am a I am I'm a pale kidding. white yes. compared to your attractive, warm, brown, tan. Oh man, Brad. How about that to start we, the podcast? <laughs> we are all God's children, so we're good. Well, it, it is, uh, it's fun to have all of you listeners back with us. Yes. Our community, we've gone from seven listeners to now, I think we're up to 12. Yes. So we keep on moving up. Shout out to your family. <laughs> and, and yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can we count ourselves in that number as well? We can. To Absolutely. To boost our ratings. Yes. And uh, just a reminder, if, if this is your first time to be listening to this podcast, welcome. Uh, if you would, do us a favor. Go on iTunes and subscribe. Yeah. We're now in the business of subscribing because this is going to be a uh, mini podcast. Right over the course of time. So you'll want to subscribe in mm -hmm. iTunes or Stitcher. Or, uh, there's another one out there. I can't Something. think of the name. But yeah. any way you get your podcast, yeah. go ahead and subscribe. Also give us a rating. Yeah. If you're willing to, that helps other people see about it. Yeah. And then uh, tell your friends. There's going to be some good stuff. You don't want to miss it. And by subscribing, you'll make sure you don't miss out on some of this incredible stuff coming. And I usually say give us a review. We're pretty early in the voyage here. Yeah. But if you feel like there's something you want to review. Out of the goodness of your heart. Yes. Then go ahead and go do that. Go for it. If you didn't listen to episode zero, which was our first episode, mm -hmm. technically this is our second, we really do want to bring you value. We want to bring you lots of different voices. Uh, CJ and I are going to tell lots of our story and have a conversation, but we also believe that you know, we're going to be your filter yeah. for the best of the best that's going to help you thrive. It's going to help you be a better leader. It's hopefully going to help you in your church or your organization, whatever role you're in. So. Yes. Part of why we started this podcast, and I am kind of pounding the table. You are, without actually hitting yeah, it. I'm like not really hitting it, but I'm, I'm just trying to that show you. That means you're you. a professional when it comes to doing I'm, recordings. That is true. Yeah. Um, but why we started this podcast, Brad, is because... You know, if I'm just honest, I want leaders to be healthy. Yeah. And we can't just have thriving churches and not healthy leaders. We've got to have both. So we're doing this to try to bring information and insights and content that's going to help keep us as leaders healthy, but also our churches thriving. Yeah. For those of you who don't know who we are, a little background on me, Brad Lominick. Yes. Okay, how do you spell that? <laughs> L-O-M-E-N-I-C-K. Oklahoma boy. Yes. Go Sooners. Boomer Sooner. Okay. History major, which is pretty much wow, worthless. Wow, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I love the World War II 
Okay, so American history. American history, but I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a global guy too, but I really did love that 1930 mm, to 48 classic like leadership. Yeah. That's another podcast, another time, but mm -hmm. there are some great leadership lessons during that segment of our own history of our country as well as other leaders around the globe. But spent a couple years after college working on a ranch in Colorado, riding horses. So nice. I do have some wrangling in my background. Whoa. You didn't know that either. Are we got any videos on YouTube floating around of that? Uh, probably not, because I was there during the uh, you know the 90s. So oh. there weren't a lot of videos being shot on, on your iPhones we at just, that point. We just didn't have the bandwidth. Remember those massive yeah, the these, big phones? The recorder, like the video oh recorder. Oh my that you, gosh, yes. The things that weighed like the 700 RCA, pounds. Yeah, the, yes. yeah, back to the future. Yeah, there was a lot of those that were floating around at that Man. point. And I met John Maxwell through some of that experience, then got connected to him and ended up in Atlanta around, you know, early 2000s. And at that point, we were doing a bunch of leadership events, which how do you go from riding horses and working on a ranch and wrangling right. to leadership? How do you go from horses to John Maxwell? Many so, have said yeah. that it all comes back to, especially leadership in horses, it all comes back to the way you scoop manure. But I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Huh? Uh, all right. It's all <laughs> horse poop these days. <laughs> During that time, we launched a bunch of brands, and mm. this thing called Catalyst got started. So I was sort of in the right seat at the right time and got to be a part of that and then led it for many years. And I guess you could say I cut my teeth from a leadership perspective on building that brand of Catalyst and doing lots of events around the country really gathering young leaders. Mm. Uh, I was a young leader myself. Yeah. So that's been a huge part of my story is really the catalyst 12, 15 years of being a part of that movement and getting to be around so many amazing leaders. Yeah. And that's one of the joys when you are part of launching something like that. You don't realize the value that people you bring in who are gonna speak and be part of it and inspire people, like the value you get from them. Sure. Not just listening to them, right. but watching the way they lead. Yeah. I mean, I remember vividly like Chuck Swindoll walking in and the way he treated people. Here he is, the grand Pumbaa yeah, of, right? you know, I grew up listening to him on radio, but mm -hmm. then to see him in person and watch the way at 70, he's treating people and he's this wise sage. And mm. at that point I'm 32 going, man, I want to end up like yeah. this guy. So right. the lessons you learn from being around folks like that are, really, really deep and immeasurable in many ways. So that's a little bit about me. Amazing. We are going to do a podcast where I just drill you because I have a lot of questions. On horseback riding? Well, yes, naturally. Yeah, no question. Oh, you thought I was going to ask you about Catalyst? No. <laughs> speaking of horses. Yes. Speaking of scooping manure. Mm-hmm. I'm not going there at all. You thought I was going to go there, though, didn't you? <laughs> was, you thought I, I was, was going to go there. I was leaning forward thinking no, you, you might. No, you thought I was going to go there. <laughs> we really are excited uh, about this podcast, but also this episode. Yeah. Because we get to listen in mm -hmm. on arguably one of the pioneers yes. of the modern American church, Bill Absolutely. Hybels. Bill Hybels, incredible leader, incredible church, incredible history. But Brad, here's what I love the most about this interview. I feel like we get this candid interview with him and he tells it like it is, he's being real. And I think people who listen to it maybe go, wow, Bill's kind of lifting up the veil on some aspects of leadership that so many people can relate to. And his insights are just incredibly powerful. So I'm really excited that people get to hear this interview. Yeah, and this happened last year at Thrive Conference right. in May of 2016. Mm -hmm. So for context, that's what you're listening to. Ray Johnston, who we'll have on this podcast many times, is the senior pastor 
director right. of Bayside Church and, and really the Grand Pumbaa of Thrive. Mm-hmm. And so Ray sits down with Bill in this really candid conversation. So we hope you enjoy. A little over 20 years ago, Carol and I moved to Chicago, Illinois. I took a job at Trinity Divinity School and North Park University and a whole bunch of other stuff back there. We moved from California to Chicago in January. It's not God's will. And, um, and we moved there in January. And what happened is that freed me up to pick a church to attend. And we picked a church which wasn't that well-known back then, I think it was 1988, called Willow Creek Community Church. And I had the privilege of being at Willow Creek in church, and I was a member at Willow Creek for over two years, and it restored my faith that a church could be a force for God and for good in the community and in the world. And that doesn't happen without leaders that pay the price. And I am honored to be able to have some time here to interview Bill Hybels here at Thrive. Would you give Bill a Thrive welcome? Hey, first of all, um, aren't you glad Bill's here? Yeah. Uh, remember the old worship center? What? I do. I, I, I remember being back there with Bill one time, and he said, you know, we have a 4,300-seat worship center, and I can't wait till we build a big one. And I thought to myself, you know what? When you measure the church by the amount of people outside the kingdom of God, life gets a whole different perspective. And I thought it was really good. Bill, I want to actually start with this. We put a little list together, okay? I'm going to read a list of things. By the way, I asked Bill, I said, do you want to go over? He said, no, ask me anything you want. So here we go. Um, and, uh, but I'm going to put a list up here, and I want you all to guess which one of these is not true. Y'all ready? Number one, at 16, you took a trip around the world by yourself. Most of your original Willow Creek Association team are your old sailing buddies that didn't know Christ when you first met them. When you started Willow Creek Church, your big youth ministry event were all the guys dressed up in women's clothing and called it All Queen's Eve. (laughs) You've authored 49 books, slacker. Um, Your son sailed around the world, I think so, and you helped raise the budget of Willow Creek in the early days by selling tomatoes door to door. Which one of those is not true? Ladies and gentlemen, they are all true, okay? And so I want to take you back. I want to, ta- I want to take you back. Um, by the time I started attending your church, you had already built the worship center and 120 acres of lake and all that kind of stuff. And most people, when they think Willow Creek, think that. Walk folks through what were the early days like? What vision birthed it? And what was life like back when you, a lot of these folks are starting ministries? Just walk them through. What was it like in the early days? A handful of friends, three or four buddies of mine, had had powerful, life changing experiences with Christ, but none of us were particularly fond of the churches we grew up in. Uh, we barely survived them. And so we got together and we said, uh, what would it be like to start a church where uh, you could invite friends, there would be an environment of hospitality, openness, joy, learning, 
a safe environment to proclaim the dangerous, life-changing message of Christ? What if we use contemporary music? What if we harness the power of the arts so that uh, people could learn uh, instead of just from preaching, from all different kinds of uh, ways of learning? What if we did this in a sort of casual fashion? We rented a movie theater uh, and started out in 1975. And so the tomato story, that's actually true. Yeah, this is the odd part for those of you who like odd. Uh, I grew up in a, in a quite wealthy family and had a lot of opportunities. My father owned a company that he spent 35 years building, hoping that I would run it uh, when he retired. And my father was a hero figure to me. And I'd never knowingly disappointed him in my life and had no plans to. And then when I got this prompting to leave our family and company and to go to Chicago and start a church in a movie theater, uh, it actually devastated him. And I dreaded telling him, and I remember like it was yesterday, he said, Billy, you didn't even like church when you were growing up. You're not a pastor. You're not trained for this. Why are you doing this? And I said, I, I feel prompted by God. And I remember walking out of his office, and it was, he was devastated. And he died of a heart attack a couple years later, so he never really got to see what Willow... Uh, he, he thought it was just a pretty bad idea all the way around. But the, the reason you're asking about the tomato story is his core business was a produce business, buying and selling semi-truckloads full of fruits and vegetables to grocery stores and all this kind of stuff. Well, as I walked out the door, he said, if you think I'm going to fund that new church, you're wrong. If this is from God, you're going to have to sort it out yourself. I thought, okay, well, now here we go. And the only thing I knew how to do when it came time to rent the theater and to buy the sound system and some lights to hold a service, the only thing I'd ever been trained to do is sell produce. So with borrowed money, I bought an entire truck full of tomatoes, and my buddies and I sold them door to door and uh, made just enough money to uh, pay the first week's rent and to buy the sound system and a few lights to hold the first service. And uh, you've been at Willow many times, right? You know, when you walk out my backstage uh, office door, the first thing I see before I walk down the hall to come on the stage is a picture of uh, a whole pellet full of tomatoes because, I mean, I remember that. And I remember thinking, this isn't going to work. <laughs> you know, who, who's going to buy tomatoes in August in Chicago? And, you know, what, if we can't sell these things, you throw them away. And then we're out the money I you know, borrowed and all of that. It was a pretty far out idea at the time. We were in that movie theater. Here's another thing you should probably know. We, we were in the rented movie theater for six and a half years. And they started, uh, the last couple of years, they started showing horror movies on uh, Saturday night. And they were so horrible that a lot of people vomited in the, in the movie theater. Oh, it gets better. Uh, so the janitorial crew of the rented movie theater figured out, well, we were going to rent the... We're going to hold services there Sunday morning. And they were like, if we don't clean it up, the church will. Because, you know, they have uh, more motivation than we do. So for a whole long time, 
Uh, I'd get the call 4.30 in the morning, you know, come over, uh, my wife Lynn and me, a few other couples, and we would get uh, buckets and soapy water and sponges, and we would crawl through the aisles and clean up other people's vomit for two hours or so, and then we'd start rehearsal, and then we'd go. And I only tell you that story because some of you are at the beginning stages, and as Ray eloquently said earlier in the evening, Sometimes you go to events and you hear stories from people who are down the road and you think, man, that must have been an easy road. And anybody who's ever built a significant, thriving church, uh, trust me, there's a price to be paid. And if you try to build one without paying that price, I don't think you'll build one. The scripture is very clear that Important visions have high price tags. By the way, that is a great line. Write that down. Could you elaborate? Important vision has high price tags. Well, I mean, let's just, what was the most important vision in the history of the world? It was God's vision for Christ to come, pay the atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind, right? That was the most important, most critical vision ever attempted. And it had the highest price tag ever attached to a vision, the spilled blood of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And if you just extrapolate that the rest of your life, the most important visions carry the highest price tag. If God ever puts an important vision in your heart, just go dot, dot, dot. This is likely to be very costly. And prepare yourself. Now, God will help you. You know, he's with you. He's not going to abandon you. But don't think that this church work business is an easy road. It's not an easy road. It's very fulfilling. There's nothing I'd rather do, but it's costly on every front. Yeah, it's never easy, is it? Even when it feels like it should be. When I got to Willow, I was there two weeks. Time Magazine came out with an article, and it said, Willow Creek, the marketing of the church. And a Time Magazine writer had actually visited the church and wrote a long article. I read the entire article and actually gave it to my class. And I went, this guy missed the whole thing. In a sense, it was, oh, this is slick marketing and this and that. And I sat, I'd been around enough to know and I'd been around there uh, for all of three weeks. And I went, this thing's explosive because these people will die for this stuff. This thing's explosive because at the core, there is a white hot passion. So I want to just have a quick conversation about passion because my theory is this, man, when somebody loses passion and purpose, by and large, they're done. The irony of the Time Magazine thing is uh, we didn't have anybody in marketing. We had no budget for marketing. We had never marketed anything. I was like, man, if we had money for that, we could have really built a church. But we, we never had resources to be able to do marketing. What we had was fired up Christ followers. And when you think back to the explosive nature of the church in Acts chapter 2, it wasn't a marketing campaign that took the world by storm. It wasn't social media. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was a couple of thousand freshly converted people who were running around with the joy of Christ in them. And you can just imagine how out of control that whole thing was. I'm saved. You know, I don't know anything, but I'm saved. And when you're around those kinds of people, it changes you. You remember the joy of your salvation. You remember the night you met Christ. And you go, oh, I want to recapture that. And you kind of build off each other's passion. And so I, I think the best marketing campaign ever 
is a fresh stream of freshly redeemed people. If that's happening in your church, worry less about marketing because they'll spread you know, something that's far more important than marketing dollars. And back to your question about passion and purpose. It, it's hard to energize a congregation if you as senior leaders are passionless. People just don't get ignited by something that's dead. They have to be ignited by a heart that's pulsating with the love of Christ and a fresh experience with Christ. You can't manufacture that. People will see through it. But if they know that you've been with Christ throughout the week, if they know where your heart is, if they can feel the energy that comes from being you know, deeply connected with Christ, that's what starts sending those energy waves through a church. I want to give you a quote. Most people will never give their best if their leader doesn't challenge them. That quote is from you. The, and, and I think these days we've raised a lot of insecure people-pleasing pastors who are afraid to challenge anyone. Talk about why this is a big deal and give an example of sort of when you had to do that. Yeah, so usually I have a flip chart around me when I uh, talk and what I would do right now is I, I would draw a 45 degree incline and then I would flatten it out and then I would point to the flattened out, the plateaued line. And I would say, this is a story of my spiritual life. I grew and then I stopped growing for a while. And then I stayed plateaued until somebody challenged me, somebody called something out of me, somebody confronted me, somebody said, hey, uh, why are you there when you could be here? Most of us don't give our best, pray our best, lead our best until someone stands in front of you and, and says, hey, 95% commitment to God is like 5% short. So let's talk about that five. Let's talk about why you're holding out on the one who gave everything, didn't hold out anything for you. And every time I've taken a significant step of growth, it was because somebody challenged me to. So if you stand weekly in front of a youth group or a congregation of any kind, you say, hey, it's all good. Y'all just keep living like you're living, praying like you're praying, serving like you're serving. They will. Guaranteed. And if you say, I think there's more in you, I think you were made for more, I think God has bigger plans for you than you think he does, I think if you take one step up, you'll be glad you did for the rest of your life, people will take that step, and they'll thank you regularly for challenging them. I took a survey, and it must be 10 years or so ago, and just asking for information from some of our uh, congregants, you know, so we took the survey and we said, well, what do you like most about this church? And I didn't know what to expect. And in the top three is that this church challenges me. We love being challenged. That was a surprise to me. I thought, do people really like to be challenged? A certain kind of person does. And when you challenge them, they rise to the occasion. We just, uh, Ray would have known about this. We have a three-week emphasis every year at Willow called Celebration of Hope, where we raise the awareness of the plight of the poor to our congregation, and we do a whole bunch of stuff around it. One thing that we do is we pack seed packs. 
And this year we decided to pack a million of them in one weekend. Now it was gonna require many, many thousands of volunteers and a lot of time and all that. So I stood in front of the church and I've done this for many years. We've packed seeds for a long time. And I say, okay, ready for my riff. If you're too cool <laughs> to sit at a table and pack seeds for people who are starving, you are what? And everybody says together, too cool. I go, that's right, you are, you're too cool. You shouldn't be so cool. And if you're too busy with your extraordinary life that you can't carve out two hours to sit at a table with other people to pack these seeds, you are, and they all respond, too busy. I go, okay, so be less cool and be less busy and come pack seeds for starving people. That's not a terribly charitable way to ask for people to step up, right? But it's just enough edge to it that they go, maybe I am too cool. And if I can't carve out two hours, what's up with me? And they turn out by the thousands, but you gotta put that challenge out there. Maybe not, you're pretty quiet. When, when you start out in ministry, there are some things where you're going, man, this is really important. And all of a sudden, you get some miles under you, and you go, that eh, wasn't that big of a deal. What stuff did you think was really important when you started that now you're going, nah, it's just a waste of time? I used to think that unless I could convince 100% of the people of the congregation to come with me on a new initiative or a, a new vision of some sort, I took that very, very personally. At a certain point when the church was a certain size and and I thought that everyone would make a gift to this campaign or this effort or this mission project, and only about half the people would. I was devastated. I thought I was a loser vision caster. I thought I was a loser pastor. I thought, oh, that's terrible. And, and God's kind of relieved me of that whole thing where, you know, I, I don't really think 100% of the people are ever going to get on board with anything except me leaving someday, probably. But, <laughs> the, but at, I think would God put something on your heart? I think the answer is yes, you say, I'll do it. You give it your best vision cast, your best challenge. Really beyond that, you kind of have to walk away and say if 98% of the people jumped on board, that's awesome. If 88%, if 77%, whatever, if you're clean in your heart and congruent with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're like, God spoke to me, I know I needed to do this, I did it, I gave it my best, then go home, go to bed, leave it in God's hands. I no longer think 100% is realistic, so. Well, a buddy of mine had a recent vote and was called to this office by the church, and it was like a 1,000 to four. And he was like, I kind of a, wish it was unanimous. Well, are you kidding me? I got people at Bayside that would vote against the resurrection. They, um, <laughs> and so at some point, free up. Okay, so then the other side of that is this. Is there stuff where you're going, the older I get, the more fired up I am about this stuff? I would have to say I miscalculated early in my life. I think I was so fired up about our ministry model and the enthusiasm of our weekend services. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, not very many people were doing what we were doing. I mean, there was a, a lot of excitement about it. And I miscalculated the importance of private spiritual disciplines, and public spiritual gatherings. So 
we had people who wouldn't miss a Willow Creek service. I mean, they'd 52 out of 52 weekends, they would be there. And I thought, well, man, if you're attending all these services, you're going to be good with God. You're going to grow deep in your faith and all that, because our services are really anointed and blessed and all that stuff. But I felt, you know, along the way, I started to realize, unless the services drive home the point that you need to, between weekends, be tightly connected with God, deeply engaged with the Bible, in a small group, using your spiritual gift, the services are to equip and inspire and to educate people of how to walk with God during the week. It's not designed to substitute for the personal spiritual practices. So when we started to sort that out, we changed quite a bit of stuff in our services. Uh, I end still to this day often stand for closing prayer and I'll put my Bible down on the lectern and I'll say, no, gang, I can't read your Bible for you this week. Read your Bible. I can't say your prayers for you this week. Say your prayers. I can't give a word of witness to your friends at work this week. I can't do it. It's up to you. Say a word to your friends for God this week. And I started to shift more of the responsibility of a person's spiritual uh, vitality onto them and their private practices as opposed to, hey, make sure you come back next week because we're going to rock the place. Big difference, subtle, but big difference over time what that means in someone's life. So that would be one thing that comes to mind. It's good. So for yourself, I mean, everybody's wired a little differently. What recharges your batteries? Yeah, again, I apologize for you know, my answer before I even give it. Being around water, I mean, it's shallow. I didn't mean that, but I mean, as uh, I saw that coming, before. Yeah, I should absolutely. have kept it inside, yeah. Uh, you know, some people, if they can run, if they can garden, if they can ride a bike, if they, you know, everyone's got some kind of recreation that replenishes. For me, it's anything to do with water. And so if I'm by the water, if I can be on the water in a, even a small boat of some kind, uh, that's very replenishing. In more recent years, I have two grandkids now, and Henry and Mac, nine and four. And uh, I swore to all my friends who were grandfathers before me that I wouldn't be that shameless idiot. <laughs> I'm worse. <laughs> and uh, if most pastors knew the amount of time I spend with those two little boys uh, in a given week, they would think I'm shirking my job. I'm very connected with those boys, and it's not uncommon for me to be with them two, sometimes three nights a week. I didn't have present grandparents. I barely had present parents. And I decided really early on, I'm going to be present for Todd and Shauna, the two kids that God gave me, and I'm going to be a present grandfather. And it... It just replenishes me. Hey, we'll come back to that family topic at, at the end. Um, I have another question. It goes a little bit with battery charging and draining. Right now in social media, everything's a highlight reel. Problem is life and ministry is not a highlight reel 24-7. What was your toughest season in ministry and what got you through it? Sorry to bring that up. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, we were in a capital campaign one time, and we raised the money and exceeded the goal. You'd think this shouldn't be a problem, but we exceeded the goal by so much that actually a whole bunch of people said, well, you don't need my pledge. And three years later, we had to re-raise some of those funds. And during that time, a very key leader that was very key to our whole ministry took a calling to another church. And then I had a couple other disappointments uh, going on. And I was, I know some of you are from uh, Ireland. I happened to be teaching in, in Dublin, Ireland, and I got the terrible news of how much money we had to re-raise, and I got the terrible news of the staff member who was resigning to go to another church. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was tired. So I get on my running clothes, and I go out down the streets of Dublin, and I see a squirrel that had been run over by a truck. And it was just flat as a pancake, you know, all spread out like that, you know. And I ran by it, and this is actually my thought. I thought, you think you have problems? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I trade places with you in a heartbeat right now. You're out of here. I still got to face my problems. So it, it can get pretty bad. So what got you through that? I mean, sometimes you just stick it out. But some of these folks out here, they're going, man, my life's... Tr- would you tell them, get help? What actions would you take when somebody's going, I want to be... Yeah, well, I mean, if you go to the baseline of this whole thing, Absolutely. and again, I'm probably old school in this, I'm almost a maniac about the concept of calling. If God calls you to do something, it's one of the holiest experiences you can have in this life. You know, you think about it, seven and a half billion people on the planet, one transcendent God, and he reaches down and he calls you to do something and says, I'm giving you an assignment and I'll bless your life if you'll carry it out faithfully. In the lowest of the lows, I've always had to revert back. Am I still called to this? I actually one time went through a, this is a different experience, but I I got in my car and I was going to drive out of the campus of Willow one final time. And I made it to the entrance sign. And the Holy Spirit whispered, did I end your calling? Did I say you're done? I was like, oh, what a time to bring that up. You know? And I remember it physically. I turned the wheel in my car, went back in the entrance road, went back to work. And I just said, you know, I think if I'm obedient to my calling, I think help from heaven will come. And I think if I bail on my calling, all bets from heaven are off. Now, again, I'm old school on this, and you can play it differently. You play it however you want to play it. But in the worst of the worst of times, if you can go to bed at night and say, I still think God's called me to this, and you get up in the morning and you go, I think this is the mission he has for my life, you find energy as you obey. You find energy as you put one foot in front of the other and you say, if you called me to it, you'll help me with it. And you kind of keep going. Now, confiding in friends. Yes. Many of you know Henry Cloud. He's been you know, a very close friend of mine, 1-800-HENRY, if you want to call him. Um, <laughs> and so all of us probably in senior leadership of high-velocity ministries, we probably all should have some kind of relationship with a Christian counselor because there's inner world mysteries that are going to get churned up 
along your ministry journey. I guarantee it. You have some massive betrayals, huge disappointments, accumulated stresses that don't get worked out. If you don't have someone who's trained to help you with some of this inner world stuff, you can come off the rails for lack of just a conversation with a trained counselor who can help you pay attention to things in your inner world. So there's a lot of other things you know, that I could add, but for the sake of time, I'll just reference those. If you're taking notes, if we can just pass you for a second, just write this down. Never make decisions when you're down. It is almost always going to lead you down a destructive path. I mean, discouragement precedes destruction. Watch this. Raise your hand if you've ever resigned, but you're still there. <laughs> More than once. That has happened to me consistently over here. Matter of fact, at one point, I think it was your 40th anniversary book, I literally went, I think I'm done here. And I went home, took out your book, opened it up, and the first line of your book is you saying, I always wanted to spend my entire life at one place building one church. I'm not sure what the rest of the book says because I started crying, closed that sucker, threw it across the room. <laughs> They're still stuck with me here. And part of that is at some point, if you make decisions when you're down, if I made decisions when I was down, I wouldn't have my marriage, wouldn't have my kids, wouldn't have this ministry, wouldn't right. have, I mean, some of you, God brought you here. So you could hear yeah. Bill's testimony about driving out, turning around, drive back. Drive back to your wife, drive back to your church, drive back to your ministry, drive back to your calling. Yeah. Let that turn around. That's good. The, um, That's good. And just to add on to something that Ray said here, I am a firm believer. I don't want to, again, be a, an idiot about this, but I'm a firm believer that longer-term pastorates are a healthier model than three years and out, three years in trade, four years in trade. It's almost frightening for me to actually assess how long it takes to change a value in a church. Yeah. So as I've calculated it over the years at Willow, it takes generally between four and seven years to totally change or to deeply instill a value that's gonna stick throughout the course of ministry. So again, Ray knows this story. 11 years ago, our diversity percentage at Willow was about 2%. We were all right with being virtually all white. <laughs> None of us were racist. We were preaching a radically inclusive message. Nobody ever was unkind to anybody. It's just we were all right with being mostly all white. And then I had a, like a second conversion experience about racism and about the church being a house of prayer for all the nations, right? For all the nations, all the ethnicities, all the colors and all this stuff. So I had this second conversion and I started preaching on it. And we didn't turn the tide on that for about six or seven years. We're 11 years into it now. We have a 34% diversity factor. And when we talk about this now, yeah, Martin Luther King weekend, we make a great big deal about that and other times throughout the year. Whenever I make a comment now about that we're a church for all the nations and all the people and all the colors, it's an applause line every time. You can't do that in three years, gang. Yeah. I don't care how good you are. You have to stay the course. You have to withstand the criticism. You have to have the question and answer times and work this through and deeply embed it in a congregation if it's gonna stick and outlast you. 
Well, there's half a dozen of these kinds of values. The value of evangelism, you're not going to win the evangelism battle in three years. They have to see your heart fired up for people far from God for a half a dozen years at least before they'll believe that you really care for people far from God. You're not going to win the compassion and justice battle in three years. They have to see your heart broken for the plight of the poor for a long enough period of time where they go, how come my heart is not like that? And I could go right down the list of all these values. And your congregation watches you, and they go, he's going to outlast me. I think I better get on board with this value. And that's kind of what it takes. So again, I'm not arguing for 40-year pastorates. I think no one at Willow would either. <laughs> but you know, a, a strong multi-year, you know, it takes longer than you think to build an Acts 2 church. Just let me say this. Yeah, I going. loved it earlier when you said, no one's going to talk about the size of the church. We're going to talk about the health of the church, whether right. a church is thriving, whether a church is anointed and, and these kinds of things. Oh, gang, don't. I had the tremendous advantage in 1975. There were virtually no megachurches in the United States. Nobody was trying for that. We we're just smitten with the Acts 2 vision of trying to you know, be the church, not build a megachurch. Now, you know, 30, 40 years later, so many people start churches, and the goal yeah. is to be a megachurch instead of being an Acts 2 church. So the industry has changed, and the way we talk about it, even the term megachurch, it just makes me sick every time I hear it, because too many young women and young men say, that's the goal. It's not the goal. The goal is for you to build an Acts 2 thriving, healthy church that pulsates with right. the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. Good. I'm glad you brought that up. It is okay, years ago. My wife's sitting here. I'm sitting on the aisle. And you're interviewing Mike Singletary. Anybody know who that is? Former coach of the Niners, linebacker. Scariest looking guy I've ever seen in church. Just beady eyes. And 4,000, 5,000 people are riveted on what he's saying. And he gets up and he says, my wife and I built our dream home. And then we moved into it. And then we looked at each other and said, we're too far from our church. So we sold our dream home, bought a tract home, a nice tract home, <laughs> nearer to our church, Willow Creek. And then he used a phrase. I sat there, almost fell out of the chair. He used a phrase I'd never heard anybody use about church. He said, we moved closer to this church because we wanted to be part of the action. And I sat there and I thought, I have never been part of a church that was at least attempting anything God-sized enough where lay people would sell their homes to get closer and orient their lives around what God was doing. Well, let me continue that story. So Mike, at the time, in Chicago, he was all pro. And yeah. I mean, he was like the fourth person of the Trinity in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, he was just, I mean, just an amazing level of, of uh, celebrity in Chicago. Okay. So I challenged him. He wasn't serving anywhere in our church. I was like, dude, you got to serve. <laughs> and he goes, really? I go, yeah, just because you're a pro athlete doesn't mean you don't need to serve. You need to use your spiritual gifts. So serve. So, like a month later, I hear this rumor that he signed up to serve in our nursery. Okay? So, 
I kid you not, Mike Singletary stood down there and brand new visitors would come in and hand their eight month old kid to Mike Singletary. He served in our nursery, I think for five years. Um, lots of these folks are starting ministry, starting with ministry, starting whatever. If you were starting again and you were swinging for the fences, what would you major in? Again, I apologize. It, it feels rudimentary for me to say this, so if you're way past this, you know, I get it. Clarity of vision. We're all trying to build a church. What kind of church are you trying to build? I mean, really, specifically. Why is the church that's in your heart different from the church that's two blocks down from you? Why are you going to start another one? What is the unique thumbprint of God on the church that's in your heart that has to be built or your heart will explode? If you can't come to agreement on that, what is the specific, what is it about the church in your heart that begs to be built? That needs to be flushed out, that needs to be codified, that's what you talk about at leadership meetings, and you say the reason why this church has to be built is because there is no other church in this area that is blank, 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 we're going to be that church. And if you can't say we're going to be of that church, you're not ready to build one yet. It's like, you know, three buddies who get together and they say, let's start a restaurant. They go, okay, I'm in, I'm in. They all throw in a hundred grand. And then they, it comes time to, what kind of restaurant? You know, Italian, a pizza deal, gourmet, uh, sushi. And then everything comes apart. They go, we should have talked about that. <laughs> You're right. And whenever you start a church, instead of saying, I'm just going to start a church, gang, there's 440,000 churches in the United States. It doesn't need another average one. It needs something unique that has the thumbprint of the Holy Spirit on it and your particular personality and your particular life experience, that marination of what God wants to do through exactly who you are, weaknesses and pain and tragedy and all that, that's where the divine intersects. What the Holy Spirit wants uniquely and who you are uniquely, when that comes together and you're clear about it, that's why the text says, gates of hell can't stand in the way of that church. Amen. That's the kind you need to build. One of the things that I think Christians are getting wrong is how we treat people. A lot of truth-based Christians don't have much grace and vice versa. When I was at Willow, I basically, you know, for the first 15 years, they got criticized, and for the next 15, 20 years, they get copied. And... Your Global Leadership Summit is staggering. A couple years ago, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, pulled the plug at the last second and said, I, I'm not coming to speak. Tell a story of what happened. Even more important, though, some Christian leaders embarrass you. You actually made us look good. Tell everybody how you handle it. The backstory is some people from the LGBT community went online and said that they were going to boycott Starbucks if Howard Schultz came and spoke at Willow because social media said that uh, Willow wasn't welcoming to gays. So we had to work through how would we respond to this publicly. So long story short, I held a lot of meetings. This isn't something, if you ever get in a situation like this, this isn't you going into the pulpit with no notes and freewheeling <laughs> ideas about this. This is, you write it out, then you have your elders read it, then you have your executive staff read it, and then they give the next copy back to the elders, and you do this, then you let your daughter read it, then you let your son read it, then you let a few of your gay friends read it. I mean, this went through probably 15 cycles or 20 edits 
And then I made a statement at the summit saying that I, I felt very badly that Howard made the choice. And I, I said, he made a business choice. He's not judging us. He had a tough business choice to make. Let's not you know, disrespect Howard. He's a business person. So at the end of my comments, I said, let's all get a Starbucks today. You know, this, uh, it was a tough choice. Now, also, I said, the mat in front of all of our doors says, welcome. And we are welcoming to anybody who is trying to f learn and follow the ways of Jesus. We don't care where you start. If you're coming to learn the ways right. of Jesus, come on. Got a couple last questions. By the way, don't you feel like this is like taking an advanced leadership course? Yes. I never take notes on people I interview. I've never done this. I'm writing notes. You need to get out more. <laughs> So 7,000 people here and online are watching this right now. All of them are here for one reason. I just want to be a better leader. If somebody just said, I want to be a better leader, Bill, just tell me one thing I should do. I'll tell you four things. Good. <laughs> Leadership development is not all that mysterious. When people say, oh, it's impossible for me to get better as a leader. No, it's not. Everybody can get better at leadership. Everybody. You can. And everyone wins when a leader gets better. Think about it. If Ray gets 5% better each year while he continues to be the pastor here, his staff wins, and the congregation wins, and the community wins, and all his global partners around the world, the Thrive Conference, everybody wins when a leader gets better, okay? So how do you get better? Read everything you can read about leadership, not just Christian stuff, not just pastor stuff. Read across the disciplines. Read everything you can read about leadership. Second, go where leadership is taught. It's going to be worth it almost every single time. One idea can change everything. Yeah. So go where leadership is taught. Third, get around someone who's ahead of you in leadership and ask them some smart questions. And fourth, go into work every day if you're leading anywhere. Go into work every day and put your work gloves on and say, I want to lead a little bit more efficiently, a little bit more lovingly, a little bit faster, a little slower, whatever it is. Work on improving where you're leading right now. If you do those four things, you'll get maybe 4 to 5% better a year. Spread that out over 20 years. You will become an incredible leader. And I just say this as a kind of ancillary statement. We happen to be leading the most important thing going on on planet Earth. If you get 5% better leading a hot dog stand, I'm glad. It's not going to change the world. <laughs> we actually have the opportunity to get better at leading what matters most in this world. The only thing Scripture ever referred to as the bride of Christ, his church, the hope of the world. So we have such an opportunity that God has entrusted the likes of us, a screw-up like me. He entrusts with what matters most to him, a local church. And he says, now just get a little better every year, Bill. And I try. I hope you try. Uh, you're asking about the Leadership Summit. This is why we do the summit worldwide. We don't do it for our health. We don't do it to make money, because we don't. We do it in the belief that the local church is the hope of the world, and its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. If leaders fumble the ball in church leadership, the church struggles. And if the leaders of local churches are getting better and better, the churches 
will reach their full redemptive potential. So go where leadership is taught. If the leadership summit will help you, great. Sign up for it. Get there. But read. Go where it's taught. Get around someone who's ahead of you and ask them smart questions and lead with greater intentionality every day. You'll be good. Let me take it one step further. This is a softball question. 7,000 people are listening to this or watching you. Why should every single person here, regardless of what their role is, register and go to that this year? Yeah, so (laughs) your followers would greatly appreciate it if you were a better leader. (laughs) They really would. They would thank you. All day and all night. They will be blessed. I've got one last question. Your wife... Uh, Lynn, wrote this about you and to you on the 40th anniversary of your church. And if I can get through this, she said, thank you, Bill, for loving our kids enough to listen and be broken when a three-year-old asked, Daddy, why are you gone all the time? At that point, we decided together we would choose to disappoint people in our congregation if necessary rather than disappoint our kids. Despite, and then your, Lynn writes to you, despite your growing commitment to Willow and your increasing levels of responsibility, you never wavered on that. Our kids did not grow up with an absentee dad. You were present, you were affectionate, and you never passed up an opportunity to say I love you. That's probably why when the public celebration ends on Sunday evening, we'll hop in a car with the kids and head to our private family celebration home, complete with hugs and I love you's that mark every family gathering. And the greatest blessing is this, that tender tradition is now playing out with our grandkids. And then she goes on to say this, thank you, Bill, for embracing the messiness of my spiritual journey even when it was so different from yours. We are opposites in so many ways. Anybody married to an opposite? Yeah, if you, if you agree on everything, one of you is not necessary. <laughs> we are opposites in so many ways, it figures out our spiritual pathways would diverge a bit. But seriously, there we were entering the decade of our 40s, living very public ministry lives, and I basically lost my faith. Not an exaggeration. It was obvious the Christianity of my childhood was inadequate for my adult life, but the journey beyond my childish faith was not easy. It led me through much uncertainty and many doubts and questions. It was frightening, and did I mention messy? I made that journey quietly, but you knew what was going on. Yet you never said, get over this, Lynn, move on. I can't afford to have a spiritually messy wife. On the contrary, you said, I've seen the Holy Spirit at work in you since we were 17. I think we can trust the Holy Spirit with this. Don't shortcut this journey. Don't move back to what seems spiritually safe. Move forward into an authentic pursuit of God. This freedom allowed me to move authentically toward the words and way of Jesus and to discover a Christianity I could truly believe in. I tell this story often to pastors and their wives, and they're always shocked. Your response to my spiritual messiness was so brave and so loving, I will be forever grateful. In the early days of Willow, there were many in the Christian community who considered us the black sheep of the family. Smart and devout people wondered if anything good could come from a bunch of kids who had drums on stage and sang choruses from an overhead projector. If you're under 40, we'll bring one out and show you. We have a museum. And then some years later, 
things changed, and overnight, it seemed, we became darlings rather than black sheep. By the way, your wife's a fantastic writer. We learned that neither designation, black sheep or darlings, lasts. In the public ratings, we've been up and down, good and bad, imitated and ignored, inordinately praised and unfairly criticized. But here's the thing I keep coming back to. After all these years, after all the ups and downs, you and I are still in this together, Bill Hybels, and I still love our dream and respect your leadership the way I did on October 12, 1975. Happy 40th I had to pay her 500 bucks for that last part. <laughs> so my, my last question on this is this. Um, How many last questions does this guy have? <laughs> I got to go to work tomorrow in Chicago. I'm flying home yet tonight. This so is my third to last question <laughs> is this. How about this? This folks? is my last answer. How about yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> He can keep asking questions. I've just got one more answer yeah, in me. Deal. I got Singletary on speed dial. Um, look at all these folks. What does it profit a person if they gain the whole world to lose their marriage and their family? Yeah. Tragic. What would you say to everybody in here about protecting their integrity and their family? Yeah. A very well-known Christian leader came to see me one day, and he knew the speed that I was running at, and he said, let's go for a walk. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, you know. I don't go that slow. But he goes, no, we're going to go for a walk. So we go for a walk, and he goes, believe it or not, there's coming a day when you're going to end your tenure at Willow. You're going to pack up your books, move out of your office, and you're going to drive home. Like I was in my late 20s when he was telling me this, or early 30s. That was such a distant horizon. I barely listened to him. I just tried to speed up the pace so I could get back to work. And he's talking slow and walking slow. And he goes, when you pack up your boxes and you go to your house, if it's empty, you're going to hate what you did with your life. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Got done with the walk, and that night, you know, I thought about it as I was drifting off to sleep. I thought, he's probably right. So we hit the 40th anniversary, and we're in a succession plan right now. We're about two-thirds of the way through this multi-year succession plan, and I can easily now see the finish lines in sight for me. And I am so grateful that an older Christian challenged me to love my wife and to love my kids and to not let them get lost in the blaze of ministry because I do have a very happy home to go to and kids and grandkids who love God and love the church and we're doing it well. And, and uh, so if anyone needs for me to be the old guy saying to you in, at your age, these marriages matter. These kids are precious. These grandkids, they're irreplaceable in your life. So build a church in the power of God. Give them all the glory. Let family will live beyond your career. So keep that in mind. I'm just glad someone challenged me. So there you go. I'm done. Amazing. I told you. And to feel like you're sitting in the living room at the dinner table mm -hmm. in this really intimate setting to hear Bill Hybels yes. really get candid 
and talk about some things that are personal, the authenticity of him. That was something that, as I listened to that and all of you, what's your takeaway? We always want to hit on the practical side. I mean, one of the things for me is making sure that I am appropriately but constantly peeling back the layers for people around me, yep. for them to see the real me. Because many times as type A's, we think we're being really authentic and right. we think we're being vulnerable, but it takes some of those moments where you know we get emotional in order for people to actually like lean in and say, wow, I, like, I trust you more now yes. because of the fact that you're willing to be vulnerable around me. Well said, man. I, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I've seen Bill in some incredible speaking moments, but here I got to see him just be real. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that. Super cool. Well, good stuff. Again, if you would, uh, as we will, as CJ and I both will, take a minute, you know, maybe even right now, take a minute to pray, ask God, what really does he want you to take away from listening to that Mm. interview? Yeah. What are some practical takeaways? Write them down on your phone. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're sitting at your desktop, write them down in Evernote or whatever you use to make this really practical. You know, we wanted to inspire you, but we also want you to find some things or discover some things or be challenged in some areas that can help you in your own leadership. Yeah, and you know other leaders. Right now, you know other leaders, pastors, who are in the thick of it, who maybe need to hear some of the things Bill was talking about. This is a great time to share it with them. You know, get it to them. Be a part of the community that is supporting each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how how would you pass it on to your friend? If you were listening right now. Mail. I mean, like email or snail mail? No, I would (laughs) create a graphic and send it in the mail. (laughs) Postal. You would send it in the postal mail. Yeah, with a QR code. Oh, that's strong. <laughs> Man, I always thought that you were such a social media maven. No. You were like this innovation guy. I kid. You were digitally creative, but you're going analog on me. Sometimes you got to go against the grain. You got to do things that don't scale, Brad. Man, that sounded like a Garth Brooks song right there. <laughs> Sometimes you got to go against the grain. That's that beautiful. was a Garth Brooks song from like 1997. Oh my gosh, that's Well, wonderful. again, we remind you, subscribe, rate, yeah. review. Yes. Share with your friends. Yes. We are really, really thankful that you're listening, that you're part of this conversation, part of this community. We want to remind you also about the website, thriveconference.org. Lots of great resources. Great there. resources. There's a thing there called Thrive Now, where we've got incredible articles and resources for uh, leaders in all kinds of different capacities. So check that out. Upcoming episodes, we've got people like Francis Chan. Oh, baby, we've got some good stuff. We've got Francis. We've got some things with Andy Stanley. Okay. We've got Rich Wilkerson Jr. Hello. Guy's an incredible guy. We're going to get an interview or message from him on here. Who is a stunt double for Leonardo DiCaprio. You're right. Or maybe it's the other way around. Leonardo DiCaprio is a stunt double for Rich Wilkerson Jr. He subs in. He's like the lefty they bring in out of the bullpen for Rich (laughs) on a Sunday when he can't be there. (laughs) Can you imagine if Leonardo DiCaprio showed up at Vu? church in Miami right. and just said, you know what, let's test them to see if they really know. He could probably pull it off. Oh, guarantee now that you said, He's I've an never, actor. I've never thought, yeah, of course. Yeah, I've never actor. thought about that until right now, and I, I, I think he could pull it off. Let's make that happen. That's the things we do here at Thrive. We think outside the box. That's right. It's been a great episode. Thanks for listening in. We will talk to you on the next episode of the Thrive Leadership Podcast. This has been the Thrive Leadership Podcast. To download, re-listen to, and share this episode, go to thriveconference.org.